Good morning. This is Phil Coover, and I am your host of the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of real estate business and law. Today, we have Mike Piper of ICS Tax LLC and ICS Consulting. Mike was... uh, a good friend of mine in college, and he has risen to be CEO of ICS Tax LLC. He brings a wealth of experience to a, a tax incentives practice where he helps basically companies find specialized tax incentives for their buildings and their property developments. Uh, the, the actual ICS company, ICS Tax, is a, a niche, and, and Mike tells us a little bit more about that does a host of real estate development and uh, consulting services, and he is a part of all of that family of companies, but he is the CEO of ICS Tax. So I was talking to Mike. We actually met in the dorm in freshman year of college, and now we're talking about how you see all of these dorms that are being built for college students that are just incredibly luxurious compared to what we had when we went to school and they're just they're like four or five star hotels with amazing accommodations and i've been wondering and i know that it's a competitive thing that schools feel the need to develop these major uh, facilities in order to compete with other schools to draw students but i've been thinking like how do they get all the money to have such nice facilities when they never had it before and part of this is a is a public private partnership and Mike, who's familiar with these tax issues and these different types of structures, uh, was telling me about this one day. So, Mike, you got to come on the podcast. You got to tell us about some of your tax incentives that you do for companies and uh, what is going on with these public private partnerships and how are all of these uh, facilities being built for the college kids that uh, we did, that are not what we enjoyed in our time. So, Please welcome Mike Piper to the podcast. I think you'll enjoy this. He also talks about cost segregation and how to do uh, segregating your your real property asset from your personal property assets for tax benefits and some of the other uh, tax incentives that his company will help companies find what their company is all about. If you want to get in touch with us, Please contact us at solutioncentersatcltd.com or by visiting our website, realestatebreakfast.com. We should also mention this podcast is brought to you by SATC Solution Center, L3C, which is the Education and Development Division of the law firm Shankanis Tepper Campbell, LTD. SATC creates legal and business solutions for individuals, entrepreneurs, and privately held companies. I'm an attorney and, and principal with that firm. Please enjoy Mike Piper of ICS Tax. Thanks. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Phil Coover. And with me today is a good friend of mine, Michael Piper. We're going to call him Mike. Mike slip into Piper, but... Uh, Mike is the CEO of ICS Tax LLC. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Phil. It's good to see you as always. Always good to see you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about ICS Tax and uh, the related company. 
Sure. Um, so we started ICS Tax only about uh, a little over a year ago, actually. Uh, it's actually a, a spinoff and a sister company of ICS Consulting, um, which there uh, were three of us that own that. And the, the focus of that firm is really uh, in the construction industry. So we are uh, serve as owner's representatives. We do a lot of government work. Uh, we've since diversified into some private sector work. Uh, where we're really managing uh, just a heck of a lot of construction work on an annual basis, uh, primarily in the upper Midwest. Um, my job has always been as a project finance guy to figure out how to make the pieces work and make the make the project pencil in a pro forma. Um, and of course, there's historically always bigger needs and wants than there are dollars available. And so one of the paths we went down was the leveraging or leveraging the use of specialty tax incentives, uh, especially in the real estate markets. And um, it just kind of grew on its own into its own animal. And uh, we decided that it was getting to the point where it was big enough and we needed to diversify our company. Um, so ICS Tax was born and we brought in a lot of good talent from around the country, from a lot of the big four accounting firms. And uh, essentially that's uh, that's what makes up ICS Tax today. And we're doing a lot of work in the development space, uh, existing companies with big real estate portfolios and such. So um, ICS Tax is the primary focus and uh, it's uh, it's growing pretty quickly. So it's been a lot of fun and a good ride. Thanks for explaining that. You know, when, I was, when you were coming in this morning, I was thinking we're going to talk about taxes and public-private partnerships. <laughs> but that's kind of a boring way to phrase it. We're going to talk about money and we're going to talk about college. Better. Two things people like <laughs> a little bit more. Can um, relate, everybody can relate to that a little easier. <laughs> so, you know, like just to step back a little bit. So you are the CEO of ICS Tax, which is a sister company to a greater uh, real estate and consulting services company. Mm -hmm. And based out of Minnesota, right? Yep, we're headquartered in Minneapolis. We've got offices around the country, though, yep. And you are in town, so we had to grab you while we could. But I wanted one thing that we were talking about a couple of months ago, which is actually, I was also thinking about today, is kind of ironic. And I want to circle back to the real estate tax incentives. But we were talking about this a couple of months ago. We met in at the University of Illinois in a dorm. And you're here today to Forbes talk second about, hall. <laughs> yeah, six-pack Forbes second floor. And uh, we're here to talk about <clears throat> student housing. And I think just anecdotally over the past five or ten years, I hear people go to colleges and they talk about all these amazing um, amenities that the kids have these days and how it's so much better than we're in school. And Piper with this uh, mic, with this public-private um, partnership, P3 funding, and is really sort of set the table for me as to how this is happening. It's not just an sure. accident that the kids have all these really nice facilities. So why don't you tell us a little bit about just a general overview of what a P3 is? Yeah, so essentially there, there's going to be a lot of different uh, people that are involved in that space that explain things differently and probably have a different glossary of terms than I do. So, sure. um, so I'll just explain it my way. Um, the P3 stands for public-private partnership, and that, that could mean a variety of things. Um, essentially, what we're talking about, which is one of the biggest uh, growing areas in the country, uh, you actually have a lot of the people that are very heavily involved in that space around the country based here in, in Chicago. Um, essentially, if you want to break it down really simply, I look at these universities that have um, very high costs in things like w whether it's athletics or tenured professors and faculty, it, it doesn't really matter. But a lot of these schools have aging infrastructure when it comes to facilities to house and attract new students. Um, it's become kind of a competitive market where 
you have to do everything you can to attract new students and obviously get them to pay high tuition bills because that's you know just what happens around the country. Um, there's been a even back when we were in school, you know, when we graduated about. Gosh, is it 13 years ago now, 14 years ago? Uh, embarrassingly, yeah. Um, we met about 17 years ago. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon because even back then, remember, there was you know new developments going up, more attractive luxury apartments, and nowadays the, these kids are going to school and, I mean, you could call it four- or five-star hotel accommodations with resort-style pools and fitness centers and what have you. And, you know, they actually have air conditioning, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but the, the reality of the situation is these, these schools have started recognizing um, that not only – and maybe it started with this off-campus development like I'm talking about in, in back in Champaign. Where remember, I think it was on Green Street. We had the yeah. 8 or 10-story apartment building that went up, and everybody was kind of, like, wowed by, wow, it's a new facility, and it's beautiful, and – um, but I think that even that might have been an example for around the country, um, and I'm sure it happened in other locations. But essentially, you had you have on campus and off campus or on campus and off campus developments. That's those are the terms that I use. Um, off campus, you've got a lot of private developers that are building, uh, bringing in their own equity to build these facilities, um, and just lease to students on their own. A lot of times, they're building them. They may be divesting of them, you know, as soon as they're built because the market is good. Uh, but the, the public-private partnership opportunity that we're seeing is what we call on-campus. Um, and there's a huge market for this around the country, whereas a university will have an existing site, uh, maybe even existing infrastructure and dormitories that they know they need to tear down and rebuild. Rather than do it on their own with their own dime and their own capital funds, they're bringing a private uh, entity to develop the property and own and operate it and maintain it for a period of time, sometimes as long as 50 or even 60 years. That way, the school is not having to capitalize all those funds up front. And if you think about it, the pro forma actually makes sense because there's revenue attra attached to it as well with rent, uh, you know, leasing the space out. Um, so it's really pretty easy for a school to benefit from it by having a much better, cleaner, newer, updated facility. Um, and they're not having to capitalize the expense of actually coming up with paying for the property from the very beginning. And when we're talking about, you know, hundreds of dorm rooms, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars. This is not a cheap sure. expense. So um, the phenomenon of bringing in a private partner to uh, partner with the public entity um, to get these things built has created a pretty big opportunity um, for really a lot of different, uh, you know, professional services and contractors alike. You know, we fill one of those professional service voids um, So with, with our tax business. But there are a, a number of other opportunities as well. Um, because there's a lot of nuances in how these contracts are written um, just from a capital reserve planning standpoint and demonstrating that the facility will be in good enough shape when it's handed back over to the university at the end of the ground lease term, you know, whether it's 30 or 50 years, it really it really varies across the country. But um, that in and of itself has created a, just a massive opportunity. And there's a lot of developers that are doing a lot of work out there um, and you know it's our opinion that you know we we like the ones that hire us because we think they're you know gonna have a competitive edge over somebody else uh, because they are we're showing them a way to make more money on the deal essentially so, so just to thank you for explaining that just to break it down a little bit so let's say there's a spot on the university campus and the university says let's bring in a uh, private developer does the private developer own the real estate? No, the, univer the university is always going to own the land and they're going to have a ground lease set up with the developer for a period of time. 
The developer, along with its financial backers, however that's structured, will have to construct, own, operate, and maintain that facility and demonstrate in the very beginning, even sometimes before financial closing, how they're going to actually maintain the facility down to a specific sub-asset level, meaning you know, if you think about it, you know, how are they going to maintain the heating and cooling system, the lighting systems, the, the doors? We're talking about college kids here. So, I mean, right. how are you going to replace these things and make sure that the facility is still up to standards you know, 50 years from now that when the university takes it back over, is it going to be in a condition that they feel is good enough? Those types of things and those types of technical planning services um, are, are really outside the realm of a lot of the developers' capabilities, and they need to bring in specialized help to figure this stuff out. Um, moreover, as I know you're leading up to with the tax side, um, if we can help figure out a way to squeeze a couple of extra dimes out of the project for them, you know, if you're a developer, you're not operating on super huge margins, you know, typically. So if there's a way to, to enhance that proposition for them as well, it's a, it's a good play. So then do they, all right, the university owns a property, they lease it to the developer who's going to construct mm -hmm. the building, and then who is, uh, are the tenants? The tenants would, would be the students, and they'd be like right. freshmen or sophomores, let's say, mm -hmm. for the most part. So they're probably not entering into individual leases with the developer. They probably have something worked out with the university. So does the university guarantee the rents that are coming in, or how does the actual structure of, I mean, because that would be beautiful if you had the university basically guaranteeing occupancy. Well, of course, and it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't it be perfect if we could guarantee everything. And I think in some cases, I mean, there, there's, there are models built to ensure that you're going to have capacity and you're going to have students to fill the capacity that you have. Because they, a lot of these are all part of a master plan where you have an architect developer partner or a consulting partner that helps you figure out programming and spaces that you're going to need. So a lot of that is all done, you know, in the, in the pre-planning, master planning of these, you know, universities and colleges that use this. Um, I can't say that it's a guarantee everywhere around the country. I think a lot of these are structured really on a on a wide variety of how they're how they're put together i mean if you think right. about a big 10 university versus a you know a small vocational school that may be off-site that requires housing they're going to have a very a completely different you know set of standards that they're gonna that they're gonna work off of uh, and moreover uh, there are some additional nuances even in legislative authority in different states you know certain states allow public private partnerships and other states don't um, so there are various ways to work around that or get a deal done, meaning like, you know, some states have, you know, worked through a, uh, an alumni foundation or an endowment fund instead of actually doing a contract directly with the school. So it, it's really all over the board. I can't answer that specifically yeah, for, a, you know, consistently, sense. I guess. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it seems like there's an opportunity for everybody <clears throat> to be happy with, with this. Uh, because you have a public school that doesn't have the resources for a, a massive development that's really attractive to students. And then you have a private developer who basically has a guaranteed exit strategy with mm -hmm. guaranteed occupancy or as good as you're going to get mm -hmm. from a, a tenant flow from the university. Maybe even get the leases or a certain amount of income guaranteed by the university. And then, yeah, they already have a, all they have to do is build it and then sell it back to them when they're done. And they already have a contract to do that. It's, I mean, you it, make it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> the only people that are stuck with it are the students paying for it for the next 30 years. Right. But uh, well, in a lot of cases, they get, uh, you know, they got a nice, nice place to go swim and a nice place to work out. So, sure. Um, the, the piece that's really intriguing with it, though, is 
Um, and it, it actually applies on a much broader scale. This is really where it kind of came to fruition for us to realize this as a strategy for our own company. Um, when you have a private tax-paying entity partnering with a public entity that is not a taxpayer by definition, mm -hmm. you have something that we call tax-advantaged cash flow or tax-leveraged cash flow, meaning if you have a private entity that does pay tax but can figure out a way to leverage that project to benefit their business by the use of different programs that the Internal Revenue Service has given us, or, or excuse me, in the Internal Revenue Code, um, there are certain advantages by leveraging the use of a private partner that is a taxpaying entity because it can make the deal a little sweeter for everybody um, just simply by the use of specialty tax incentives that are out there. That's how we originally got involved in this space is because you have developers um, that may go in for purposes of income tax liability. They have to own this piece of property. Well, by definition, the Internal Revenue Code states that you have to depreciate a commercial property over a very long period of time, which is not good for cash flow. Um, if we can demonstrate a way to make that a better scenario in which we can accelerate depreciation on a lot of different aspects, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of different aspects of that facility, and there's a variety of programs to do so, it helps the, it helps them as well, and it makes it a more attractive deal for the developer to come in to do the deal as opposed to just the university doing it on their own. Um, so that's really where we're seeing the big opportunity. Um, and I think that, you know, moreover than just student housing, that's the easiest market to talk about today because it's very, very large. It's going on in virtually every uh, city around the country where there's a college or a university. Um, but if you start thinking about how that could trickle down to other types of government, you know, municipalities and K-12 school districts, public school districts where they have a lot of deferred maintenance needs and they simply don't have the funds to take care of these things, instead of just asking the voters to pay for it and capitalize that cost up front, maybe there's a tax advantage cash flow play here by bringing in a private partner. That's where I see the big opportunity in the future, um, which is why we're focusing on this. Now, is that generally what you're saying? Is that cost segregation? Um, that's, a, that's a piece of it. Um, cost segregation is, you know, essentially you're breaking down a commercial facility, um, which by definition typically has to be depreciated over a very lengthy time. Typically it's 39 years in some cases where it's um, certain type of living situations is 27 and a half. And that has changed over, over time as well. Um, but if you think about it, depreciating that over such a long period of time, you can't recoup that cost. Uh, really anytime soon and typically in someone's lifetime within an organization. And so um, if there's anything that you can do to accelerate that cost up front to reduce your tax liability, yes, that's, that's the, that, is a, um, that is a project or excuse me, a process that has become implemented very widely across the country. Um, to some extent, it's become commoditized a little bit. Um, yeah. you know, it's been a little bit of a race to the bottom for those service providers because there's so many people that do it and it essentially requires cost estimating and then transferring that into tax language. Um, there are other programs out there that are not as heavily leveraged, um, like there's the Energy Efficient Commercial Building Deduction, which is under Section 179D of the um, Internal Revenue Code. Um, not to get in the weeds there, but you know a lot of the developers may have heard of this, but uh, even that's out of the capabilities of most you know accounting firms, and so it's not readily brought forth as an as an opportunity. Um, that specific program has sunset right now, and I don't know that it'll be coming back because, you know, given what's going on in Washington right now and the proposals with tax reform, it's really anybody's guess. But um, that's still a big opportunity working backwards um, because that's, that specific opportunity, we can go back, you know, decades for cost segregation. We can go back all the way to 2006 for the energy efficient commercial really? building deduction. 
Um, as long as there's still basis and they're still depreciating that asset and they still own it, absolutely. And the nice piece is we can retroactively apply it and do a catch-up adjustment. So we can recognize that cash flow increase on this year's tax return instead of having to go back and you know, fiddle around with amending years and years of returns and making it a muddy mess. So there, there are some things, again, that, that are out there. Some of the developers and some of the players in this industry know about it and make use of it. There's others that have probably never heard of it. Um, which is intriguing to me because it's, uh, you know, the way, yeah, the reason I like it, right. yeah, well, of course. And the reason I like it is it's, it's a black and white opportunity. It's not like you're selling hope or you're selling, you know, v- v- uh, virtual or future energy savings, which are hard to model and demonstrate and everything else. You're talking about black and white reduced tax liability. Yeah. Especially it's, in retrospect. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is what makes it fun. I mean, it's, you know, if I go to somebody and say, you know, hey, well, we're going to give you $10, you're going to give me one. It's a pretty easy sell. So, yeah, that's where we're <laughs> it, at. <laughs> it's, it reminds me of, you know, the, like a cheesy pitch where you're like, if I were to tell you <laughs> that you could save $1,000, would you be excited about that? But you actually can. If, if you can take a look at their accounting and see the way that it's done, you actually say, I, I can show you how to save X amount of dollars, of and this is the way we're going to do it. So my elementary understanding of it is real estate has a very long depreciation schedule. Mm-hmm. But if you can segregate out the cost segregation, what is the personal property or the non-real estate portion, that has a faster depreciation cycle. So you can depreciate that faster. So you can take a bigger deduction now. Mm-hmm. So you have more money. Which is going to reduce your tax liability. Yeah. See, you know more than you're letting on because you even threw out personal property there. No, I looked at at Wikipedia (laughs) before you started today. Um, But uh, yes, that that is the case. And, um, you know, there's a broader spectrum here. I mean, obviously, the uh, if you have the on-campus developers that are in a position where they have to hold the property for a long time, that's an opportunity. Where I mentioned the off-campus earlier, if they build a building and they divest of it immediately, there's really no need because they're not going to be depreciating that asset anymore then we have then we're forced into another scenario which becomes a little more convoluted so the the target rich environment if you will uh within that within that space are is really the on-campus p3 model and that's where a lot of our uh, business has been developed i guess within the tax side but you know if you take it out to other you know companies that have large real estate portfolios um, you know, again, you mentioned cost segregation. That's kind of the one buzzword that a lot of people have heard. But there are so many other opportunities with fixed assets that are that are not necessarily overlooked. Um, but if you think about a company that has a hundred thousand assets or more, or tens of thousands of assets on the books, um, no one. I mean, do you know any corporate CPAs that have additional time on their hands? I mean, it's about all they can do to remain compliant, get the returns done on time. Uh, you know, much less they're not going to have time to go, you know, look for specific opportunities that may are they're probably not even within their wheelhouse, such as, you know, the energy efficient commercial building deduction. Do they know how to do cost estimating and segregate a building out? Do they know how to apply, you know, all the changes in the tax code, even within the last year, um, like the tangible property regulations that allow us to, you know, expense a lot more specific items as opposed to capitalizing those and apply it retroactively and then make all those changes in order to get, you know, reduce tax liability at the end of the day. It's just, it's not, the, the math does not add up for companies to have the time or the internal capability to do that. Um, so big real estate portfolios are a, are, are a huge target for this industry. And uh, that's why we go after it. So. Sure, sure. Going back to the uh, P3. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm I'm thinking it's for a government, if they want to, or any sort of public entity, if they want to build something, let's call it a library, 
libraries near and dear to me. My mother was a librarian. Of episode, episode 11, <laughs> Mother's Day special. That's Check right. it out. But uh, she, I did listen to that one, by the way. <laughs> it was my best one because she's a fantastic guest. Uh, so she, as a director of a library, built uh, a library. Now, if, a, if the governmental entity says, I want to build a library, I have this land available, uh, either I can raise $10 million to build this library, or I could use a private, public-private partnership and have a private developer build it. Um, I guess my one question is, is if I don't have the money to build it now, but I would be signing up for a deal where I have a private developer build it now, and then I'm leasing it back to them, and then there's some sort of agreement as to how the funds will work. But I'm buying it from them in 30 or 50 years. Why do I think I'll have the money 30 or 50 years from now if I don't today? Or is it just now I have 30 years to plan for it? I, you know, well, there, I, there is some benefit to time and planning. Well, I think there, there's kind of two answers to that question. I think so. Typically, when the property, or excuse me, the, the physical property that's constructed is being turned back over to the university or to the government agency that that is entering into this type of agreement, um, you've got either fair market value or, or it's a it's a very small dollar amount at the end of the at the end of the term because by the end of the term the pro forma is structured so that the developer ha is made whole over time. Typically, there's equity backing in order to construct the project right away. The developer, the contractors, all the services are obviously being paid up front, and that money is being paid back over time. It's no different than you know just structuring debt on a construction project. Right. Um, so I don't think you necessarily would need to worry about saying, hey, we need to have a whole, you know, basically a balloon payment at the end of the day to pay for the project um, if you structure it the way that's amenable to all the parties. So I don't think that really is an issue. Um, the second gotcha. piece, the, the, the second piece to, to that is, you know, the reason that P3 projects, and again, this is my opinion, I'm sure there's more educated views out there uh, and opinions on this, but the reason that the student housing market is such a huge opportunity right now is because it's very simply got a revenue attached to it. It's very mm -hmm. easy, to, easy to make that pencil out because you know that when you send a student to school, you're paying for room and board. You yeah. know that you're going to have to do that. A library, not necessarily. So the interesting thing would be how do you figure out a way to structure that? Depending upon where you go, you know whether it's a municipality or a state government or whatever it might be, everybody's got their own state legislation that enables you to do certain things. It also tells you how certain agencies are funded. So like, for example, where I'm from in, in Minnesota, um, all K-12 funding runs through the state and is given back to the, to the schools. Um, that, you know, that's not unique, but you know, it is different than other states. We know that there's an opportunity to say, hey, we can help build a new elementary school, as an example, and bring in a private developer to do that. Um, and is the cost of capital cheaper on that? Now, the, the other answer to that question is it, it completely depends on where you're at and what kind of structure the government agency has with respect to how it's funded and financed, uh, or excuse me, finances its projects. So, for example, here is a very simple question. If I'm a school district, is it more cost effective and am I going to get a better yield if I just ask the voters via a building bond referendum to build a new elementary school because we need it, as an example. Or what if we think outside the box a little bit and say, is there a reason to bring in a private developer and do a public-private partnership? 
and pay over time for the use of that facility and then take ownership of it over time. Um, you know, there's there could be a million answers to that question. So it's, you know, is it cheaper for us to take on debt service, you know, with government rates, you know, general obligation bonds or whatever vehicle you're going to use to be able to do that project? Or do you compare that to using, you know, a public-private partnership and a private developer over the over a period of time and not having to ask the voters for that money right now? Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's something that you know we ponder on a regular basis to try and figure out. You know, on the other side of our business, not not tax, but on the consulting side, you know, we're hired very frequently to our clients hire us to basically do asset planning, help them understand what needs they have, where they're going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now, and help them figure out how to get there. Um, what I believe needs to happen in in the space all all over the all over the place, especially with respect to government, is can we help them think outside the box a little bit and at least determine if there's a better vehicle to do something? And I do believe that the public-private partnership possibility is there. Um, I, admittedly, we haven't penciled that out. We haven't, you know, built an elementary school and a public-private partnership. I'm certain something like that has been done. Or in your, you know, your example, a library, for example. Um, but again, the big reason that that has been done is. Uh, or excuse me, with student housing is because there's revenue attached to it. So if you can come up with a way to make that pro forma pencil out uh, in a better format, then obviously there, there seems to be a play. Don't sleep on those nickel late fees a day. Yeah, those exactly. I don't think that's going to fund the project very quickly. Hey, those nickels add up. People um, do not return those books. Right. But to your point, you know, earlier or to your question earlier, again, you know, when you bring in a private tax paying entity, is there enough of a sweetened deal for them to want to pursue something like that and collect money back over time, especially, you know, whoever the financial backing is, um, versus just a school or a municipality going out and hiring a designer developer, or excuse me, a designer and contractors to, you know, do a, a traditional plan spec project. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. All I'm simply doing is flagging it and saying, I think there might be a different way to look at things down the road. Right. Right. There might be different answers for different projects, different municipalities, of course. Um, You know, one thing that I always want, not always want to, but there's there's something that I'd like people to understand. And this conversation about depreciation and tax actually might be a good backdrop for it. I'm going to surprise this on you. But 1031 exchanges. So I get this as a commercial real estate attorney. I get people all the time who believe that 1031 exchanges are the answer to life's problems. And they just can keep rolling it over. Keep kicking the can down the road and getting new properties, of course. Right, but I I don't think everyone understands. Some people do for sure, but that it's a tax deferment strategy, not a tax avoidance strategy. And one thing that you don't realize is that uh, your basis continues to carry over Hmm. and sometimes it might be beneficial to you to sell a property, settle up with the government, and then take your remaining proceeds and purchase a property and start with a new depreciation basis mm-hmm. going forward. Um, but I'm sure you could explain that better than me. So I don't know. Actually, you summed it up pretty well. Um, they are a very common practice. They are utilized by a lot of real estate owners. Um, we It's something that we assist in um, quite a bit. Um, I don't I think you're right. Uh, to some extent, it obviously everybody has their own unique situation. The way that I would look at it is, look, if you're going to divest of a property, do a 1031 and invest in a new property. Um, are you kicking the can down the road from an income tax perspective? Yeah, to, to an extent you are. 
Um, but to your point, I would I would suggest looking at it, you know, a little more from a macro level to say, what are all of the strategies that I have at hand? There are a lot of people that just automatically assume a 1031 exchange is exactly what they need to do. Um, which again, it, it is a it is a working vehicle. That's there's a reason it's used. But to your point, if a developer or a building owner was to, you know, to use your term, settle up with the government and then have a new investment in a new facility and make the use of other programs that are available um, to dramatically increase their cash flow right away, you know, there, there's a lot of people that are, yeah, you know, it's a timing difference. It's not, you know, it's not the end of the at the end of the day, we're still going to have to depreciate this thing fully over a really long period of time. Well, I, I'd still argue that money today is worth a heck of a lot more than it's going to be 10 or 20 years from now. And cash is king. I mean, if we can't generate millions of dollars worth of cash flow um, from investing in a new asset, you have kind of the stated way that you're supposed to do things. And like you said, depreciate things over a very long period of time. Well, if we can generate a lot of cash flow from day one and make the and make it look a heck of a lot better from a cash flow perspective, why would you not do that? There are there are, there are reasons to not do that, and everybody has their own answer. But you know, at the end of the day, cash is king, and everybody needs it, and everybody wants it because if we can reinvest cash today in something better, again, you know, that's I mean, we it's no different than you guys take with your practice or I take with my practice. So. Um, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, there are various reasons that people do it, but uh, at the end of the day, I, I don't think it's necessarily the, the all-time go-to strategy. No. Yeah. No, I think that was that was an excellent analysis. I just, and yeah, it's an excellent strategy. I just feel like, like you said, there are other strategies to consider before arriving at your conclusion about how to handle it before just automatically using a 1031. Um, I just wanted to ask you kind of generally, Mike, about, the growth of your company. I know it's yeah. been growing leaps and bounds. And if anyone has more specific questions and wants to contact Mike about tax issues, feel free to uh, to do that. You can contact me, contact Mike. Uh, we'll put your information up in our, our show notes. And uh, but just tell me because I, I just you know I, I like to talk about real estate, but I also like to talk about business. Sure. And you guys have been growing leaps and bounds in the past year or two. And mm-hmm. just tell us a little bit about that. Sure, I appreciate the question. Um, yeah, it's been, it hasn't been without some headaches, but it's been fun. Um, we, uh, uh, so I always came from the, uh, I, I always did large design build projects. I did a lot of performance-based contracting, which are really design build solutions. A lot of government work, not all, but a lot. Um, my job was always to really develop a, a bit of a more complex technical cell in a project, meaning it's not just a, let's go out, um, find the money, do a capital expenditure authorization request and build the project or the building or whatever it might be. It was, how do we bring in all kinds of alternative, you know, funds or funding to get a project done? So again, it's all about piecing that pro forma together to say, look, can we redirect, you know, future utility savings, you know, something as simple as utility rebates, uh, you know, tax incentives like we're talking about today. Um, there's government finance programs out there that are becoming much more widespread, like PACE financing is, an, is, a, is, a, is a great vehicle to use if, it, if it's applied correctly. Um, we were focused, my group has always been focused on leveraging the use of all of those. Um, I actually had started my own company in 2011 uh, called General Energy Brokerage and Consulting, and uh, we were focused on developing those types of projects. Um, alongside me, when my partners at ICS Consulting, uh, they had started in 2006, and they were more focused on just traditional bid and spec projects, um, but they had a vast 
wealth of knowledge on the construction development, design development, uh, and construction process. Um, a lot of veteran construction management, project management folks uh, within ICS. So I aligned myself with them from the very beginning, um, who then eventually became my partners a short year and a half later um, because we ended up developing some very large projects together and it just made sense for us to merge the two companies together. Um, that was in 20, and it was practically in early in middle 2014. I don't think we did anything on paper until 2015. Um, when that all occurred, um, the market was really starting to ramp up. Uh, construction market was starting to ramp up. And I think at that time we had 12 or 14, maybe 15 people. And that was consisted of primarily project managers, project coordinators, and, and, and the three partners, essentially. Um, by the end of 2016, I think we were up to about 50 people. Um, and then fast forward to 2017, uh, this year, um, we started ICS Tax. I'm sorry, that was a year ago. Um, that was really just bringing in uh, some really great minds from the tax side of things that could really, you know, interplay with all the construction work that we were doing. Um, that group is up to, I believe we're up to nine people now, and that was just August of last year. Um, and then on the consulting side, uh, we were just approaching, I believe it was between 50 and 60, and we just actually announced a merger um, this June that we've been working on kind of behind the scenes for a year uh, with a very similar firm like ICS Consulting, um, very good veteran program and project management um, consulting services where, you know, the client would hire us to help them develop and define a plan of where they needed to go with their real estate assets. Um, but also one of the one of the bigger pieces of that that I'm really excited about is that merger uh, along came with it was um, a very well uh, and long established mechanical, electrical, and civil engineering firm. Um, so we have yeah, more awesome. professional services that we can provide our clients. So um, it, it's kind of funny when people ask me, like, okay, you're 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 part of a construction management company, and and you and you run a tax consulting company. There's this disconnect that everybody assumes, but if you think about it, there's really not because we leverage a lot of our capabilities on the tax side to help our consulting side and vice versa. Um, so it's really been kind of a neat thing and, and it's pretty unique in the industry. I've not really run across other companies that, that blend those types of services together. And at the end of the day, we're really just trying to streamline the overall effort of taking real estate assets, planning for what we're gonna do with them, actually implementing what the plan is and then helping them operate and maintain them for the long haul. So um, it, it's really all about streamlining that whole process. The tax business has taken us, you know, way off the charted course um, because we work with, you know, really companies that have all kinds of fixed assets and we've got a unique process that enables us to scrub those in a very quick amount of time um, to identify those missed dollars that we're talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the core business really is focused around real estate and construction, and that's what we do. So Yeah. No, it's actually, as you're describing that, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's actually kind of similar to what we do here at our firm because uh, we have a litigation section of the firm. We have a corporate transactional section of the firm. We have a corporate transactional section of the firm. Mm -hmm. And really all it is is we represent a lot of large real estate companies. So yeah. they're going to need transactional services to lease property, buy and sell property. They're going to need litigation services because they get involved in disputes. Mm -hmm. And they're going to need corporate work and HR, employer-employee situations always come up when you represent any company. So sure. that's kind of what it is because people think it's People may at first blush, but like, oh, are you litigation or are you transactional? It's like, well, we represent real estate companies. Oh, yeah, and real yes. estate companies, you take care <laughs> of all of it. Um, 
from the tax side, who have you found that you help the most? Like what type of residential property owners, industrial, um, retail, it, commercial? If it's residential, it's multifamily residential, like apartment yeah. and condo complexes. It's it's mainly the CNI market. Um, the companies obviously that have a lot of fixed assets, um, you know, whether they have big real estate portfolios, whether they lease or own, they're both opportunities. Um, but you know, if you compare, uh, you know, like for example, we do work with one of the big, uh, you know, fitness chains in the country, um, where they have fifteen or sixteen million square feet of operating space, probably more than that. Um, you know, they're a great client. Um, they weren't aware of a certain program that we brought to their attention. Um, we. Our, the, the name of the game in our world is efficiency. If we go in and we have to ask for all kinds of information just to even get a proposal in front of them to show them what we can do for them, but it takes them a month to gather the data in order for us to go through and generate you know, a benefit estimate, if you will, we're going to lose every time. We have to make it easy. Um, and so what we found is by making ourselves very efficient, we've developed a proprietary software technology that enables us to essentially identify the opportunity in a matter of hours as opposed to months. Because um, you think about it, some of these large companies, especially you know Fortune 100 or what have you, that have hundreds of thousands of assets on the books, there's not, no one's really gonna have the time to manually go through and identify missed opportunities or retroactive opportunities with updated tax rules to say, this can save us, you know, pick a number, $10 million. Um, it just isn't gonna happen. So we had to get efficient. We had to develop a program that, that enabled us to do that in a, very, in a very fast amount of time. So now all we are really looking for is, hey, if you have a portfolio, send us a copy of your fixed assets for tax purposes. You know, there's book and tax. Um, if we can look at those tax fix at, fixed assets, depreciation schedules, we can plug that and map it into our system and really identify the benefits um, literally within a day. I really, don't really care what size the company is. We have that capability. Because of that, I'm getting, I am going to answer your question, but because of that, that's enabled us to help companies very large and very small. But it enables us to help companies, um, the larger companies, better because the opportunity obviously is larger because they own a lot more assets, but it's a bigger opportunity that is identified because no one has the time to go through literally the barrage of information that they have. It's just too much information for anybody to consume. So we have to utilize technology in order to get more efficient to today's, to today's market. Um, that fitness company that I mentioned, we just started with one specific incentive and I believe the deduction was somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or $25 million. And in addition to that, um, in just utilizing that process that I just described, I believe we've identified somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 or $170 million in additional deductions just from you know, things that they don't really have time to focus on. And again, if you're keeping up with the tax code and figuring out how to apply those things, the name of the game is efficiently finding those. And for a company that's paying taxes and has a lot of cash on their books right now, which a lot of companies do with this, with this economy and the way that the market is set right now, Cash is king. That's worth a lot of money to them. Yeah. They could build more clubs with that. They could build several new clubs with that. So um, those those are the types of success stories. And I'm not. I don't mean to not talk about the small companies that we work with. But if we truly are going to talk about the companies that we've helped the most, it's honestly been the big ones. Yeah. No. I'm sure scale makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And those. If you can segregate out those elliptical riders and the lat pull-down machines, you can take huge deductions on those. Well, believe it or not, they've already got that stuff pretty much covered. There's a, it, there, there's a lot of other programs. And again, you know, you mentioned cost segregation, which has been a, a buzzword. A lot of people know about that. A lot of folks have talked about 179D, but you know, there's still a lot of other opportunities out there. The tax code changes on average once a day. 
Really? People don't know that. I mean, it's not like Congress is, they can't get enough done to actually do something once a day. But the point is, when they do make changes, they're generally sweeping changes to the tax code. Um, that equates to more than a change a day. And I mean, if we could mm-hmm. fill this room with paper on the tax code, you know, it's over 10 million words long. That's a, that's a, that's a too much information for anybody to really fully digest and make use of. Um, so I'll admit we're not even doing 100% of it, but we're doing pretty darn close and, and a lot more than a lot of folks realize out there are, or of the opportunities that are out there. So, um, and again, it's all through the use of technology. I mean, we're, we're, we're not getting any younger and it's 2017. I mean, if we're not using a computer to help us, then what are we doing? So, Mike, if anyone's out there that wants to contact you, how should they get in touch with you? Uh, they can always go to our website. Um, we have uh, icstax.com. It's ics-excuse me, ics-tax.com. Um, the About Us page has all of our leaders and teams on there. Um, same with ICS Consulting is ics-consult.com. Um, of course, they could always contact through you. So um, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.